This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and thank you for joining me today. My name is Anna Thomas. Today I'm bringing you a story from another podcast about the death of a nine-month-old baby back 36 years ago in 1987. Baby Jacob Jeremiah Landine lost his life while in the care of his mother's boyfriend. His story is covered on the true crime podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side, with host T.Z. Borden. I was so saddened by Jacob's story that I reached out to T.Z. and wanted to help spread the word about Jacob's death. So today I present you the first episode in a series of four episodes And after listening, I would encourage you to listen to the remainder of the story on the podcast Tapes from the Dark Side. Baby Jacob had a six-year-old brother at the time of his death, Eric Carter Landine. I'm sharing this story with you in the hope that you can help Eric to bring his brother's murderer to justice. Eric has created a petition on change.org which reads as follows. Hi, my name is Eric Carter Landine and my baby brother was murdered. His murderer was my mum's boyfriend. The suspect confessed and failed the lie detector test that was administered at the time. The autopsy report and a subsequent investigation conducted by the cold case investigator at the state police confirmed that he was responsible for Jacob's death. When the case was brought before the DA at the time, He cited a lack of evidence and statute of limitations as the reason he wouldn't prosecute. I find it hard to believe that murdering a baby would have a statute of limitations. I also would like to know how a suspect's confession, as well as corroborating reports from the forensic pathologist, qualifies as a lack of evidence. I am creating this petition to urge the current DA, Clint Wellborn, to reopen this case and to bring charges against the person responsible for this heinous crime and bring him to justice. New Mexico has failed to hold child abusers and child murderers accountable for decades and it needs to stop. A message needs to be sent that we will not tolerate the abuse of children in this state. Please help me in signing this petition to get the attention of the district attorney. So after listening to this episode, please listen to the remaining three episodes on the tapes from the dark side and also sign the petition at change.org. Baby Jacob and Eric need your support. So I present to you episode one of the tragic story of Jacob Jeremiah Landine. I had to like open the bruise up and let some of the bruise blood come out to show them. Tapes from the Dark Side contains descriptions of violence and sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. Why don't we start with you telling me about Jacob, what you remember about him. I just remember he was funny and he liked to laugh and he liked to pull drawers and make all the silverware fly out. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he was just a silly boy. He was really smart. The two voices you're hearing right now are that of Eric and his mother Brenda, and they're discussing their loss, in Eric's case of his brother, and Brenda, her son, Jacob Jeremiah Lundin, who died when he was only nine months old. And like throw the whole thing backwards and just lay there and laugh. Try to flip it over. <laughs> and he'd be like, <laughs> his little laugh. Yeah, his laugh was amazing. It brought me joy just to hear it. He was so happy. He was happy, little baby. Well, big baby. <laughs> yeah, he was big. He was big. He was 10 pounds. <laughs> like, huge for me. <laughs> I remember um, right before you got pregnant, and I told you, Mom, I'm going to have a brother. Yeah. And you didn't believe me. <clears throat> I thought it was going to be a girl. <laughs> and it was a boy. Sure. You're right. <laughs> Today I want to tell you a true crime story that is close to me, closer than perhaps any other story I've told so far. The reason for that being that it's the story of the death of my friend Eric's brother. Jacob was killed in 1987, and Eric was only six years old at the time. His mother Brenda was only 25. But shockingly, Eric was blamed for his baby brother's death. Most of us barely remember what it was like to be six years old. You're getting your first glimpse of the larger world. You maybe have just started dressing yourself, can tie your own shoes, perhaps for the first time, and you're just beginning to develop an understanding of your place in the world. Imagine, suddenly, you're blamed for physically abusing your brother. Your mom sends you away to a strange city to live with your dad, who was now divorced from your mother. And then, the devastating news. You find out your brother has died suddenly in what is called an accident. I remember being blamed. I remember being very confused. And, you know, I think you know me better than most people. And I, especially at that age, really wanted to make everybody around me happy. And so I think I said what people wanted me to say or what was being said to agree with them because I didn't want to cause problems. It was kindergarten time. I remember that because I remember I loved my kindergarten teacher. She was so cool. And then I had to go to California and get a new teacher. Um, yeah, it's not, I felt that I needed to remove you because I, even if something would happen, I don't want you to be blamed. And I knew that. He would use you and blame you no matter what, regardless. So you called my dad? Yeah. I called your dad and I said, you know, this and this is happening. And I don't know what's going on, but I want Eric removed from this situation because I just, I couldn't understand what was happening. And I kept hearing, you know, he dropped him. He picked him up out the crib. He dropped him. I walked by, he kicked him. You know, everything was like... Eric did this, Eric did that, and Eric's so jealous, and, you know, it wasn't true. And so I had to make sure that no matter what happened, you were protected. How exactly did nine-month-old Jacob die, and why was Eric, a six-year-old, blamed for his death? Let's investigate. On April 7, 1987, Jacob Landine died from a brain injury a subdural hematoma 
which is a buildup of blood on the surface of the brain. When blood pools in the space between the protective layers in the brain, it increases pressure on brain tissue. Essentially, our rigid skull offers no release valve. And so, when the brain is squeezed, the blood flow begins to slow. The compression of the brain creates a lack of oxygen-rich blood, which in and of itself creates additional swelling. This pressure eventually forces the brain to travel down through the small hole at the base of the skull, which is called the foramen magnum. This is an oval opening through which the brain is connected to the spine. And when brain matter comes into contact with the bone around this opening, it's often too late. Brain function is already severely compromised, and because we need the brain to control breathing and heart rate, death often occurs. And in Jacob's case, death did occur. He was only nine months old when he died. Although this story is filled with tragedy, it also has many twists and turns that I think make it one of the most compelling true crime stories that we've covered to date. But before we begin, I want to make a note that creating this episode presented me with what might have been my greatest challenge to date, and that is because of my friendship with Eric, I knew I was starting off with a bias. And no matter how clear-cut a case might seem on the surface, I do believe there are two sides to every story. I did my best to balance my pre-existing notions and come at this case with a fresh set of eyes. I intentionally avoided reading any coverage of this case from other podcasts so that I could at least try to present an unbiased account. But with that being said, I'm sure that there is some bias on my part, and I want to acknowledge that. With that being said, I'm honored to present to you the case of Jacob Jeremiah Lindine. I think everyone has a bit of a fascination with the dark side. Let's start with the facts of the case. In April of 1987, New Mexico State Police Officer Sue DeWalt was assigned to investigate the death of Jacob Lundeen, a nine-month-old baby who had died from, quote, a blow to the head. The autopsy report reads, Jacob Lundeen died of a subdural hematoma which compressed the brain and caused irreversible damage. The autopsy examination also revealed the evidence of an old, partially healed subdural hematoma, as well as a partially healed skull fracture and a healing fracture of the fifth rib. The microscopic characteristics of all of the healing injuries indicated that they occurred approximately three to four weeks prior. It could not be determined solely on the basis of the autopsy that these injuries occurred at the same time, but their ages suggested that they did. The coroner reported that the skull fracture and the old subdural hematoma were directly related and that these injuries were possibly associated with an episode or episodes of child abuse. The healing phase of the subdural hematoma is particularly susceptible to re-hemorrhaging, with trauma of a lesser degree than usually required to cause severe head injuries. And such an acute reaccumulation of blood within the subdural space was deemed at least partially responsible for Jacob's death. Jacob had died from some kind of blow to the head, 
But what the autopsy uncovered was equally horrifying. It appeared Jacob had been the subject of severe and repeated physical abuse. And so the obvious question becomes, who would want to hurt a nine-month-old baby? Sue DeWald was assigned as the investigating officer, and her report gives us a first-hand look at exactly what happened on the day that Jacob was killed. From DeWalt's report. At 11.38 p.m., I interviewed Brenda Valerie Lundin, mother of Jacob Lundin, at the University of New Mexico Hospital. Brenda is employed as a checker at the supermart in Socorro, usually working 3 to 9 p.m., However, on this day, she was scheduled to work 11 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Her mother, Merlinda, normally babysits Jacob while Brenda is working. Brenda stated on this day she told her mother to take the baby to John, who is Brenda's boyfriend with whom she lives, if she wanted to go to church. A quick note here that the name John is a pseudonym. I have been asked by Eric at this time to not use this person's real name, and so we will simply refer to him as John. Brenda said her mother took the baby to John at approximately 6 p.m. At approximately 7 p.m., John entered the supermarket where she works in hysterics and told her the baby was in an ambulance and not breathing. John told her that Jacob had fallen off the couch. So I was checking out a customer. I heard the ambulance pass by. At that moment, he ran in the store. He said, Jacob's in the house ambulance. I don't know what happened. I said, well, what do you mean Jacob's in the ambulance? And he just, he said, we gotta go, we gotta go. And I just ran out the store. I left the customer there. I don't know what happened. I just left. And I got to the ER and my mom and dad were there. I don't even know how they got there or what happened. And I, Jacob was in, in the room. And I walked in, and I touched my baby on, on his chest, and he took a big, deep breath. I can you. Mama was home. Mama was there with him. And they had to fly him to Albuquerque. They took him to Presbyterian, and the injuries were so bad, they had to airlift him to UNM Trauma Center. So Jacob was airlifted to the University of New Mexico Hospital and he was rushed into emergency surgery. He didn't make it. He died shortly after they took him in for surgery. So from my perspective, as a six-year-old, I was asleep in my bed in California. My dad woke me up to tell me that there had been a terrible accident and that my brother was being rushed to the hospital. I didn't really understand what happened, but my dad told me that I needed to get my stuff together so that we could go back to New Mexico. Uh, I believe it was that same morning we jumped on a flight and went back to Albuquerque. I remember that there was a state police officer along with my mom and my grandmother waiting for us at the airport. As soon as we got there, my mom told me what had happened. Jacob passed away overnight. My sweet little brother was gone. And... I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that feeling. If Eric was in a different state, a different time zone, how could he be blamed for his brother's death? Coming up, we will hear firsthand from John's first interview with police 
in which he explains in his own words exactly what happened during that mysterious one-hour time period from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on April 9th, 1987. Stay with us. Before we dive into John's interview with police, I thought it'd be helpful for you to have a bit of background information about John's relationship with the Landine family. You see, John was not just a random boyfriend of Brenda's. He was a longtime family friend, and his history was intertwined with that of the Landines going back decades. Eric's father, Gene, was a preacher in the Pentecostal church, and John's father was also a preacher. John's father was a mentor towards Gene and helped him to get established in his career in the church. Gene, Brenda, and John were all friends growing up. Gene and Brenda would get married and have kids, Eric and later Jacob. But things went south when Gene began having an emotional affair with another woman, and Brenda found out about it. This became the impetus for their divorce and was also a motivating factor in Brenda's decision to start dating John. She wanted to get back at Jean. She wanted to show him the emotional pain that he had caused her. And what better way than by dating one of his closest friends? But this also poses a question. What kind of friend would so readily jump at the opportunity to date their good friend's ex-wife? I talked with Eric directly to get more information on the relationship between his father Jean, his mother Brenda, and John. So my mom and dad, they were very young when they got married. My mom was 17. I think my dad was maybe 20. And my dad had aspirations of being like a really famous televangelist. That, that was his goal. And so he spent a lot of time on the road. And my mom was stuck with me and Jacob trying to figure out how to feed us because she couldn't work because she had a baby and a... a preschooler you know there were times where we didn't have any food in our house and we didn't know where we were going to get food from and then my mom finds out through john that my dad was having an emotional affair with another woman i don't believe that it was a physical affair i think that they were just spending a lot of time together but for my mom it was very it was a betrayal it was a huge betrayal of her trust you know, she's struggling to keep food on the table, struggling to keep hold of the house and take care of the kids and all this other stuff. And my dad's just out hanging out with his friends. So she left and she did see John as this potential revenge against my dad. She wanted to hurt him in the way that he hurt her. And John was already grooming her for this anyway like he swooped in as soon as she came to town and started trying to sweep her off her feet i think that's where my mom's motivation was it was probably due to her age and her heart being broken and all of the pain that she endured and stress that she had and how old was she and how old were you at that time uh, so she's 20 years older than me so i was five and she was 25. And then, because Jacob is your full brother, so there was a time when she got back together with your dad while um, dating John? No. Jacob was born before that. Oh, okay, okay. 
Gotcha. So it would have been right, right at that time, basically. Yeah, Jacob was about three months old when they separated. Oh, okay. Can you tell me about John's relationship with your mom, which is something I didn't know you, you were telling me where we were chatting that she actually knew him from childhood, which I thought it was just kind of like this boyfriend who she had just yeah. met. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? So his dad was a minister in town. My mom, my grandma, my grandpa, my, my aunts and uncles, they all went to the church. So the kids all grew up together. His sister married my mom's brother. His aunt is my godmother. So we had known this family. We had known him for a long time. He was also my dad's best friend. And my dad was being mentored by his dad. My dad was a preacher. He was trying to, to get in there and try to become, you know, this big evangelist. And so this person was not a stranger. This person was somebody that we all knew. It was somebody my whole family knew. Did you know his father at all? Yes. Yeah. What what was that relationship like? Had you ever seen his father be abusive to anyone? No. No, and and I think that probably John was abused at some point. I, I believe that in my heart. I think that's why he behaves the way that he does. But I don't know that it was his father. It could have been anybody. From Sue DeWalt's police report. I interviewed John, live-in boyfriend of Brenda Landine. John has been living with Brenda since late December or January of 1987. He is employed as a maintenance man for the county of Socorro. John states Brenda's mother brought Jacob to him at approximately 6 p.m. He seemed to be feeling all right. John put him in his walker and gave him a teething cookie and his bottle. John was on the floor dubbing some cassette tapes for his brother. The baby was playing in the living room in his walker. One of the wheels kept getting stuck in the box which contains the tapes. John stated he moved the baby away from the tapes, but the baby kept wanting to play with them. John took the baby out of the walker and placed him on the floor behind him. He gave the baby two or three old tapes to play with, his teething cracker, and his bottle. After playing on the floor for a while, the baby became sleepy. John stated he picked the baby up and was carrying him to the bedroom when the tape clicked. John put the baby on the couch and went to change the tape. He then heard the baby make noise, and when he turned around... The baby was lying on the floor between the couch and the coffee table. John stated he picked the baby up and saw a yellowish liquid coming from his mouth and nose. He turned the baby over and patted him on the back in an attempt to clear his mouth. He said the baby's eyes were rolling back into his head, so he ran to the neighbor's house with the baby to have them call the rescue unit. The baby was throwing up and John placed him on the floor and tried to clear his throat and gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He said the neighbor also attempted to revive the baby. After the rescue unit arrived, John went to the supermarket to notify Brenda of what had occurred. John stated he did not know if the baby had struck his head on the coffee table. It's at this point in the police report that there's a marked shift in focus from John and what happened on that particular night to Eric. 
John is aware of two previous injuries to the baby, both of which he believes were inflicted by the six-year-old brother, Eric. The first injury was the first part of March. His children were visiting and he was taking care of Jacob and Eric. Brenda was not home. He took his children home, leaving Jacob with Eric for a short time. The next day, Brenda noticed the baby had a skinned ear and she took the baby to the doctor. John stated Brenda finally was able to get Eric to admit he had taken the baby out of the crib and dropped him. John stated the second injury occurred two or three weeks later. On Saturday night, Jacob was fussy, so Brenda gave him some medication and went back to sleep. On the next day, Sunday, Brenda's mother felt he had a soft spot and knot on his head. Brenda took him immediately to the doctor, who treated the injury and advised Brenda it came from a blow to the head. Jacob was in the hospital for a couple of days. According to John, when Brenda came home, she asked Eric if he had done something to the baby. Initially, Eric said no, and Brenda talked to him about lying. Eric asked her what would happen if he was lying, and she told him if he told the truth, he would not be in trouble. Eric then admitted he had kicked the baby. He said his father told him when someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Jacob was pulling Eric's hair, so Eric kicked him. John stated they took Eric to the hospital when they went to pick up Jacob. When Jacob came out with his head bandaged, John said Eric seemed to be scared. After that, Brenda sent Eric to live with his father in California. John stated he knows of no other injuries or broken bones that Jacob had. Jacob has not been well since the first head injury. He has been fussy, vomiting frequently, and had an ear infection, tonsillitis, and an allergic reaction to the medicine. John said he has two children who he sees frequently, and they have not had any unusual injuries. He does not know how Jacob was injured this time, except that he must have hit his head on the coffee table. He said Brenda is an excellent mother, and her mother, Merlinda, takes good care of the children. From everything we've learned up to this point, it shouldn't be much of a surprise to hear John avoid responsibility for Jacob's death. It's also not surprising to hear him describe multiple incidents in which Eric had been the one to hurt Jacob. But what was surprising to me is that when I first read Brenda's interview with police, she described the same things. She said Eric had kicked Jacob. And then in Merlinda's interview, who is Brenda's mother, Eric's grandmother, she also describes the same things. She says that Eric had kicked Jacob in the head and that Eric was jealous of his baby brother. I was suddenly faced with a dilemma. Everything I knew up to this point told me that Eric was in no way responsible for the death of his brother, but now I was staring at interviews with his mother and grandmother, who had no reason to lie, saying that Eric had kicked his brother in the head. Though, on the other hand, even if that was true, Eric was in another state at the time of Jacob's death. It seemed like a stretch to me that a six-year-old living in another state could in any way be responsible for the death of this baby. But in my attempts to remain a neutral third party and to get the truth, I decided to ask Eric directly about this. Hear my raw exchange with Eric Carter-Landine on the next episode of Tapes from the Dark Side. And you had one memory of kicking, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you said you had a memory of kicking Jacob one time. 
Yeah. Can you, do you, can you tell us what you remember from that? We were laying on the floor. Episode 2 in the Jacob Lendine story will be released next week, though it's available right now on Patreon, as well as all four episodes of this season, plus all early releases for future episodes. Thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon. I really couldn't do this without you guys. I know financially times are really tough right now with inflation and the rental market being crazy, the housing market being crazy. So if you can't afford to subscribe to me on Patreon, please don't. If there's any bonus episode that you want to hear and you can't afford it, just message me on Instagram at the dark side pod and I'll send it to you for free. But if you can afford to give $5 a month, then you will get all the bonus episodes that we have and you will get my undying gratitude. We also read out the names of our supporters in the credits, which because the episodes in this season are a little bit shorter, we're going to wait until the finale to read out our Patreon supporters. I just thought that made sense. Thank you all again so much. If you want to support me, go to patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side, or the link will be in the show notes. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight.